Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Hey, we are in Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. If you want to open up your Bible, that's where we'll be this evening. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, or the verses will be on the screen, or you can go to the App Store, download this great thing called the Bible, the YouVersion app, and it'll have the whole Word of God in it. Well, hey, uh, right before the message, maybe yesterday, we posted online and said, hey, what is your greatest need? What's your greatest need? Uh, This question can have answers all across the spectrum based on where you come from, what your family's used to, uh, how you were raised, where you're at right now, your your socioeconomic class, all different kinds of things. Um, I have three little boys. I have a one and a half month old. I don't know how many weeks he is. I stopped stopped doing weeks after a certain point. Uh, I have a two-year-old and an almost four-year-old. And... um, it's funny to see the different levels of what they would call need in between them. Uh, you know, the, the six-week-old, the one-month-old is like, uh, he just does three things. He fills his diaper, he eats, and he sleeps. Like, that's, that's all he does. He doesn't really do anything other than those things. So, like, when he cries, one of those three things is probably what needs to happen next, right? Like, there's not a whole lot of rocket science to just seeing what the baby needs and doing it, Right? So that's pretty basic. And then you have the, the two-year-old and the four-year-old, and they're, they're about in the same uh, boat, but like need is pretty um, elusive. It's, it's kind of objective for them um, because what they think they need isn't always what they actually need. Um, our, our in, my in-laws, Tyler's parents, had the boys, uh, the older boys over the weekend, and uh, they came home today, and they came home, and Thatch, like, came and grabbed us and said, hey, I've got uh, something for you. I was like, what's that? And he's like, cookies. And he grabbed this, this thing, and he opened it up, and he was like, can we have one now? And it was like three or four o'clock, and we're like, yeah, that, that, that'd be fine. So him and, him and Jad are eating cookies, and uh, Tyler tells him, like, hey, in a couple minutes, like, you can help us, or in a little bit, you can help me make dinner. And Thatch, in a, like, five minutes after he finished his cookie, he goes, but what about eating one more cookie? Like, he, he's like playing the game. He's trying to figure out like, but what if I ask really nicely and I'd be really cute? Like, negotiations, like one of his spiritual gifts. I don't know if he's going to be like some kind of management or, or like, I don't know. But he's, he's working the game and he knows how to do it. Um, but uh, it, it's pretty interesting to see what they think is a need and what they think is a want because uh, when you say no to what they believe is a need and you say, no, maybe not cookies. And they, they responded really well today, but uh, I would be, be wrong if I said that in the past they, they've responded well every single time when we've told them no, uh, that we've said, no, that's not what you need. We're actually going to eat dinner here in just a little bit. Uh, sometimes they've been known to get upset to do a little bit of trying to hit us. That's really fun. Uh, and Thatch is just big and strong enough now that a good pop to the nose doesn't really feel very good. Um, but they think that that's what they need. And they're, they're willing to just throw their whole body on the ground and just throw a complete tantrum, right? They'll go into a room, they'll get upset, they'll do whatever it takes to, to get what they believe is their needs met. And really, I mean, take that idea and multiply it times 100, if we just let him eat cookies all the time, 
he's one, not going to grow. Two, he's going to probably develop some diseases that aren't going to be good for him. Uh, and he's, he's not going to get the nutrition that he needs, right? Like, we're not just terrible parents. We do let him eat cookies, but we also want him to grow past uh, three foot one inches tall. So we want to be kind to him in that way. Um, but all this idea of what you need most is pretty foundational, it's pretty important. When you consider what you need most, sometimes that changes based off where you are in life. Uh, if you're in a college psych class or a philosophy class, you've probably seen what's going to be on the screen next. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Does anybody, I met a psychology major who's getting ready to graduate in a couple of weeks. Can you put that up on the screen? It's Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And at the bottom, what you have is just the basics. It's just the average stuff. Everybody needs it. Your physiological needs, your food, water, warmth, rest. Like you need these just to survive, right? And then on top of that, you've got safety and security. You, on top of that, you have some of those psychological needs, intimate friendships, relationships, esteem needs, prestige. Like, and on top of all of that, you have self-fulfillment, self-actualization, achieving full potential, including creative activities. I mean, if you don't have that base layer of thinking, if you don't have that base layer of needs met, it doesn't matter if you're trying to figure out quantum physics if you're hungry. It's just not gonna happen. Like, one of the things, we, we do a program called Power Packs here at the church that's a food program for low-income schools here in Springfield, and the, the idea behind it is that there's a free and reduced lunch number that's pretty high at some of the elementary schools here in town, meaning that if you fall below a certain income or need level, the school in the city will provide for you breakfast and lunch at school, so really 10 meals throughout the week are paid for. Well, what happens if you fam your family can't afford a decent lunch through the week on the weekend, that doesn't mean that you could afford it. So what we've done is we, we've partnered with a couple of local schools and a couple of uh, providers, and we're, we're providing almost 500 bags, over 500 bags at seven local schools here in Springfield so that they have food over the weekends. Why? Because if you're hungry over the weekend, you show up to school on Monday, you can't think, you can't start to learn, you can't start to take some critical thinking until you've got some food in your stomach, amen? Like, we've all been there. Like, if I don't eat for a certain amount of time, I get this thing called hangry, and there's no messing with me. I don't want it. I don't, I don't need to talk about anything until I get some food in my stomach. And this thought, this idea, I think we have to start to answer this question. What is the absolute most important in our lives? We're going to read through Colossians 1, a small section of it today, but what's really important to understand is that in Colossians, they're talking to the Roman people. And the Roman people, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I mean, they were the cream of the crop. They were the best of the best as far as their empire. I mean, it was the biggest anything had ever been. It was the strongest that anything had ever been. Nothing matched it. And they lasted for 15, sorry, 1,500 years from 47 BC to about 1437 AD. I mean, just unbelievable promise. So what he's writing to, what Paul's writing to in Colossians is a people who have got those basic needs taken care of and they are thinking, they are operating on a higher level than most other people in that time. And he's arguing with them Listen, you need to understand where you fall in this. Because they had these things met. 
They had everything that they needed. And I think that this is where we can land on. If you think back to your parents, your, your great-grandparents, uh, an older generation, th- there was a different meaning for fulfillment, right? My grandfather got a job when he was 18 years old, and he worked that same job until he's 68 years old and retired. Why? Because fulfillment for him looked like putting food on the table for his family of four. He was happy with that. He was great with it. Why? Because his family didn't own anything before him. They'd never owned a house. They'd never done anything of great financial, socioeconomic significance. But with each generation, they climb that pyramid, and they go, okay, now I can argue for some esteem needs. Now I can, can start to find some self-actualization. And I think this is where we land. This is the reason that depression, that anxiety is one of the highest that it's ever been because I'm not worried about what I'm going to eat next. I'm not worried about where I'm going to lay my head at night. We've moved on. We've moved up the ladder a little bit. And I think that spiritually, we need to understand where we land with Jesus to understand what's the most important, what's the foundational, what is the greatest need. So we're in Colossians 1, sorry, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. I'm going to go ahead and read it if you'll put it up on the screens. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's this idea of who we are and who Christ is. Logan talked about who Christ was last week, that he read Colossians 1, 16 through 17, and he said, for him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That he's saying, this this is who Jesus is. All the thrones, all the things that you see, all the dominion, all the power created by me and for me. I, I have that power, says Jesus. So the power that you see in Rome, God let them have that. God allowed them to have that power. And that's who Jesus is. And he turns the page, and in verse 21, he says, and you. So he turns and turns the light on you. And he says, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. And and that's, it's not fun to listen to when you hear alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. That's not the most, like, attractive, like, read that to you, and all right, guys, it's been fun. Let's go have some s'mores outside. No, 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 that's, that's not the end of the story. But given where Jesus is, he's explaining to them, hey, you were alienated, you were hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds. And what he's explaining is that from your internal to your external to the manifestation of the things that you do, you are separated and distant from God. That who you are from, from birth through behavior, thought life to your identity you're not as close as you think that you are. I mean, let's take a look at each of those words. The first one, he says that you were alienated. This is your position. This is your identity. This is who you are. 
your citizenship. I mean, these were Roman citizens. These are people that that would have been one of the most important thing about them. And he's saying, hey, you think you're a citizen, you're really an alien in the thing that's most important. In your positioning to God, you are separated. And that's a hard pill to swallow. That's not fun. We've learned that maybe it's the word alienation, maybe it's the word isolation that's pretty similar, that isolation has its bad points. We've learned that over the last couple of months, right? That isolation, you start to have thoughts, you start to have unchecked thoughts, you start to believe some things about yourself, you start to change the way that you view if you're isolated, it changes things. Here's a way that he explains it that helps make a little bit of sense. Um, in Jerusalem, there was a man named Herod who came in power. He's kind of the governor or the stateship over the city of Jerusalem. And he takes the, the, the plans of the temple that we find in the Old Testament, and he builds it. He builds this thing. And you can see a little bit of a picture of what that looks like. It was this big, massive thing that was stories tall. It was massive that you could have seen it from all over the city. And there were these different levels, and you can kind of see them there. It's got the gates, and then you see on the bottom left-hand side, that big area in there is the court of Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you could come into the court of Gentiles. You could be involved, but only at a certain level. And you take that into that first gate, if you go up the beautiful gate, to the court of women. In the court of women, you could have just Jewish women. That's where they were allowed to be. And then if you were a Jewish man, you take the court of men and you go to that next spot. You can go through that next gate. And then through that a little further is the court of priests. And these were the the Levitical priests. These were the people that had the right birthright. They had the right lineage. They were the right people. And you can go a little bit further. And then there's the holy place. You got to do some self-cleaning. You got to do some checks with God before you can go to the holy place. And then there's the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, this is a place that one person, one priest was allowed to go throughout the year, one time, to take the sins of his people and take it to where they believe the Holy Spirit lived and enter in. And he would go through a series of cleansing. He would physically cleanse. He would spiritually cleanse. And in the temple that Moses had built, what they would do is the man that would go into the Holy of Holies, if he had sin in his heart, the presence of God would smite him, kill him dead on the spot if he entered the Holy of Holies with sin on his heart. So what they would do is they'd, write, they'd put a little bell on his calf, they'd, they'd, they'd tie it to his calf, and then they'd put a rope around his foot because That dude goes in there and dies. I can't go in there and get him without me dying too. So you hear the bell stop ringing and you're like, oh no, old Johnny had some unrepentant sin and we got to pull him out, right? Bad deal. But there's this idea of if you're here, you can go to this spot. If you're here, you can go to this spot. But this idea of alienation, this idea of what Paul is describing to them is, hey, you don't deserve to be anywhere near it. You can't come into the city, much less into the temple. That this idea of separation is serious. That our sin against a holy God is so important. It's such a big deal. Pastor Eddie mentioned it on Sunday when he talked about Psalm 51, or two Sundays ago when he talked about Psalm 51, which is when David sinned with Bathsheba, and he just kind of outlines his prayer, his prayer journal in Psalm 51. It's it's a beautiful picture of what repentance should look like. 
But in it, he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Man, David did some bad stuff. But when it came down to it, what was most important was that he sinned against God. And that separates him. It separates us from God. We're alienated. We're not close. We're not in the court of Gentiles. We're not in the Holy of Holies. Our sin, the badness of our hearts, keeps us from having relationship, closeness, fellowship, intimacy with our creator. That's our position. That's our standing. That's where we sit with the one who created the world. But it doesn't stop there. That position moves into our line of thinking. He says that they're hostile in mind. To be hostile in mind is something that happens from your isolation, something that happens from being separate, from being alienated. This is your thoughts, that separation leads to opposition. I don't know if you've been there, but maybe you have some neighbors, maybe you have some people in your life that you know, you see them from far off. Um, You have a neighbor that moves in who has a dog that barks pretty loud and sometimes that you would appreciate him to not bark. And you're like, man, that's real annoying. And then the neighbor comes over with some cookies. You get to meet the dog and you're like, okay, now that I know them, it's harder for me to have a mindset of hostility towards them because I know them. Our alienation leads into a thought process of opposition. That I think that if some of us were to have our thoughts broadcast on this screen, that you'd turn up in another state, and I'd probably be in the same boat. That our thoughts can run wild. Our thoughts can be something that can be not just neutral, but negative towards God. See, our natural standing, our natural hope for our lives is that we will succeed, that I will succeed, that I will have my wants and my needs taken care of, that I'll be, I'll be, myself will be good, right? So if something starts to infringe on that, I'm going to fight against it. I'm going to be hostile towards it. That our natural standing with God is to be alienated and separated from him, but also hostile in mind towards him. And this is the God who created you. This is the person whose all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether on thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We are hostile towards him. And it doesn't end there. It moves into what he calls evil indeed, action, things that are legitimate outward, things that you say, things that you do. And again, if some of those things that were done in the darkness were put on this screen, we'd be ashamed, right? Things that we would never want someone to see the light of day in. That even when we try to do our best, it's not enough. That even if I tried to just make the good that I did outweigh the bad, I would never make it there. You could never undo what the bad did in my life. Jesus says that our good deeds are like filthy rags. They're just not enough. Because when they're brought up next to the perfectness and the holiness of Jesus, it's just not enough. What we've said or what we've done is alienating, it's hostile, and it's evil indeed 
towards God. So that's where we are, right? Fun stuff. Fun stuff to think about, fun stuff to talk about. But this is a physical and a spiritual reminder of where we stand with God. That maybe you're here and you're just checking out this God thing, checking out this Christianity church thing. And we need to understand what is at the base layer. What is at the most foundational layer of our need? Because what he says next makes it so important. In verse 22, he says, he's now reconciled, that Jesus has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach for him. That word reconciled, Logan talked about it a little bit last week, but for something to be reconciled, there has to be something that's wrong, right? If me and Ryan are good, there's nothing to be reconciled there. You have to step over some of the bad things. You have to make what's wrong right to reconcile. The word comes up most often when we think about divorce and separation in marriage, right? For someone to reconcile their marriage is for there to be something wrong. There was some kind of wrongdoing. There was something that happened and that couple got separated, that couple divorced. But to to think about The beauty of that word is that they reconciled. They each, in humility, walked in and said, hey, this is what I did wrong. I would like to be reconciled to you. If you will admit what you've done wrong, then I want to be reconciled with you. I want things to be made right. The Bible says that God is reconciling us to himself. The beauty of this and kind of the unbelievable part is that Jesus reconciled us to himself and he had nothing to apologize for. That he was the one who was wronged, that we were alienated from him, that we were hostile in mind towards him, that we were evil indeed towards him and he was willing to keep the door open and say, I'm willing to have a relationship with you. If you'll walk in and say, hey, this is the stuff that I've done wrong and I'm willing to give it back to you. I'm willing, he's willing to do that. Have you let God reconcile your heart? Have you in humility taken the things that you've done wrong to the feet of Jesus and just said, God, I need you? Because it says that he will do it. He's reconciled us It says, in his body of flesh by his death. This was not um, him just kind of glossing over the things that we've done wrong. This is not him just saying, hey, what's in the past is in the past. Let's move forward. This is him taking on the punishment that you and I deserve in his body. As a person who deserved none of that punishment and taking it on himself so that we could have life in his body of flesh, by his death. And look at this next phrase, in order to present you holy and blameless. That Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He was God. He did nothing wrong. And when it came time, he said, hey, I'll take all the shame 
all the punishment that you deserve, and I'll wear it so that you can have my presentation of you being holy and blameless. There's no way to think back to that Jerusalem temple that you would ever actually be able to clean up to the point of being worthy of being there. But what Paul's arguing for is that because of Jesus, we wear his clean clothes. We put on his goodness. That we get to say, it's because of Jesus, it's not because of me. That we have blameless admittance because of his qualification. There is nothing that you could have done. There is nothing that you could currently be involved in that Jesus is not willing or able to forgive you of. Can you let that sink in for a minute? There's nothing in your past. There's nothing that you're involved in right now. There's nothing that you will do in the future that Jesus wrings his hands at and says, I just don't know if I can forgive that. He took all of it, all the punishment that you deserve, all the punishment that I deserve, so that we could be presented not as 99% clean, not as pretty good, but perfect, holy, and blameless before him. That's Jesus. That's how much he loves you. That's why he was willing to lay his life down so that you could have life through Jesus. And then he says, blameless and above reproach before him. To be above reproach is to be above the threat of accusation. In the early 1950s, there was a man named Joseph McCarthy who, who started this thing where they called it McCarthyism, where the thing in the early 50s was like, we didn't want communists in the States. And it was the beginning of the Cold War. And there was this thought of like if communists came into the states and infiltrated and, and got in these high powerful positions, then they would start to bring us down from the inside. So Joseph McCarthy was a senator and he, no one really knows where he came from or what he started to do this for, but he would just kind of pinpoint people, actors and people that, are, that were powerful and he'd tell them, hey, this person is involved in communism and what would happen is they would really be blacklisted from working in an industry because, well, they're communists. Why would you ever want to mess with them was the ideal of that time. That the threat of accusation was enough to knock them out. And I think we're seeing that again. We're seeing that a threat of sexual predation, a threat of a racial thought that doesn't line up with someone else's, says racist. You're not fit to be, and we're so quick to write someone off as, well, you're this type of person, so you don't get to, that the threat of accusation carries a lot of weight. 
And he says it here, but he also says it before, that we should live above reproach. And he says that we are above reproach. Not because we just get to go live however we want, that we should live by the word of God. But he says you're above reproach, not because you're perfect, but because we live under the canopy of the goodness of Jesus. It's his righteousness. It's his goodness, not mine. I haven't done enough. I'll never be perfect. I'm going to start walking in a way that gives glory to God, but I'm still going to point to it's him. It's not me. That's why Paul said things like, man, it's, I boast in my weakness. Why? Because when I boast in my weakness, you might think, man, Jared's got a little bit figured out. He's learned to live a pretty decent life. No, 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 no. It's God. Because my natural disposition is to be alienated, hostile, and evil indeed. So when I see failure in myself, we can confess it to people and say, man, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm not perfect yet. But I live under the canopy of his goodness and I'm covered. And when we boast in our weakness, we show everyone how good God really is. Because if God can use someone as messed up as me, he can use someone just like you. And then he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. This is the most important thing. This is our greatest, this is our deepest need. That he says we don't shift from the gospel. We don't move on from I'm broken and I need Jesus. That is foundational. And it's not just a foundation that we see and we, we, we kind of appreciate it. If that shifts, other things start to shift in our lives. If you're here and you're a Christian, has that shifted for you? Has that changed? Have you moved on from the idea that you are alienated, hostile, and evil indeed, but he's reconciled you. When we started going through this, one of my prayers was just that I would realize the depth of my need for God. I never want to get to a place where I go, I'm, I'm pretty good. No, I want to admit my weakness so much that my need for Christ grows in my heart and in my mind. Christian, is that growing for you? Is that something that you see that you need every day? It's the gospel that you've heard. It's the hope. Don't move on and don't shift. Continue in the faith. The past, that he, when he says that continuing, that means it's something that you're, you're currently doing. not shifting, moving forward. Something that you continue to do is the gospel something that you've built your life on. In uh, South Africa from 1948 until the early 1990s, uh, there was this thing that happened called apartheid is what we've kind of learned to call it. 
And it was the racial discrimination in South Africa that thousands and thousands of people were discriminated against and murdered because of their race. And it lasted, I mean, over 40 years it lasted. And it was one of the ugliest things that, that, that the United States and other countries tried to help throughout the years and different things happened. And Nelson Mandela, if you know the name, if you know his story, he was one of the people that helped lead this picture of peace through uh, that season. And when it ended, uh, one of the fears was that the, the new party that came in and took place they were going to realize the depth of pain that they had, had enacted on them and they were going to turn the tables and they were going to have a bloodbath against the people that were in power and it was just going to be an absolute bloodbath and people were going to be murdered and killed because of the devastation that they've caused. But Nelson Mandela and the elected president of South Africa put in place this thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would take the people that participated in apartheid and they would deal with it on a case-by-case basis. And they would show them, hey, these are the crimes that you committed. Here are the things that you did to our people. Here are the lives that you're responsible for. And if those people were willing to confess the things that they had done, that they would be granted amnesty that they would be forgiven. And a lot of people, and looking back in history, most people consider that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was one of the reasons that that wasn't one of the ugliest seasons in South Africa's history. One transfer of power from a bloodthirsty people to another. Are you willing to confess your sin to God. Because it's not just political amnesty. It's not just forgiveness for the things that you've done wrong to another group of people. It's full forgiveness. Everything that you've ever done wrong, everything that you're in right now, everything that you ever will do wrong, that our hearts alienated from God and we're hostile in our thinking towards him and we're evil indeed but he is willing to reconcile that God is standing at the door of your heart right now no matter what you walked in here with he says I'm willing to forgive you no matter the pain that it cost him no matter the pain that we've inflicted on others, God is willing to forgive you. That we don't need to walk around thinking that we're half forgiven, thinking that, well, I need to carry some of the shame. Fully reconciled, holy and blameless before God something that we could never earn on our own. Jesus is standing at your heart and saying, it's yours for the taking. I want you to have it. 
Will you in humility confess your sin to him? Give God your heart. And let your life be filled with life more abundantly. Have peace, enjoy. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for 15 years, 20 years, or this is your first time darkening the doors of a church, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and says, I forgive you. Would you bow your head? Thank mm-hmm. you.